If someone tells you to get with the times, does that mean that they're hiring? This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, lots of options, and easy setup? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. DevMind is a software design and development studio in Chicago with expertise in Ruby, JavaScript, and Clojure. We believe that well-crafted software makes life better, and our team of designers and engineers is dedicated to that pursuit. We love our customers, we love our team, and we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that we fit the right projects with the right people. Get in touch at devmind.com. That's D-E-V-M-Y-N-D.com. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash SendGrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 152 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Josh Susser. Hey, good morning from San Francisco. I'm Charles Maxwood, and I'm half asleep. And we have a special guest this week, and that is uh, Jackie Marr. Did I say that right? You did, yes. Do you want to introduce uh, so, yourself? Sure, yeah. I'm Jackie, and I work at the New York Times in the R&D labs. Uh, so hello from New York. Very cool. Yeah, well, well, hello, New York. <laughs> hello, New York. <laughs> so, Jackie, you have been telling us about all the cool things the New York Times uh, uses Ruby for. So why don't you just tell us like how that got started? Actually, I have a first question to ask, which is, how did you end up at the New York Times? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I ended up at the New York Times, I guess I started in 2009, but my interview process started a year before that. My friend Jake Harris, who some of you might know, mm-hmm. is someone that I, I know from the, the Ruby scene in New York. And he mentioned that there might be an opening on the team at the times that he, he was working at, which was the interactive news desk. So I went in for an interview in, that must have been in October or so of 2008. And while the interview went well, I thought, and then I was, I got positive feedback. It turned out that the times was having a hiring freeze and they couldn't hire anyone. Unfortunately. Um, I don't know if you remember what, 2000, like that era, like 2008 was like for the news industry, but it was, there were a lot of doomsayers, right? That message has thankfully changed and things seem to be looking a lot better for media. But anyway, at that time they weren't hiring anyone. So about a year later, I got a phone call from the person who would become my boss, um, Aaron Pilhofer, and he asked me if I was still interested. So definitely was interested. So yeah, that's how I ended up there. And I guess going to work for the New York Times is just, there's so much history around that name. So it seems like going to work there must just be, you know, like, you know we had uh, Sarah Allen on recently and she was talking about working at the Smithsonian. It's like the, the same sort of thing. It's like a name that everybody knows and you just, it must be so uh, revealing inside there. It is. I was incredibly intimidated my first day. No, that's not even fair to say. I was in incredibly intimidated in my first year uh, working at the Times. I mean, like my first day was basically walking into the newsroom of the New York Times, being introduced to people whose bylines I recognized, um, people who have been working at the Times for 10, 20, sometimes even 30 years, and just sitting down in the middle of all that and being told, now go do your thing. <laughs> so it's... Uh, any new job you want to do well and you want to maybe impress people or you want to contribute in a positive way to wherever you're working. And for me, working at the Times is, takes that to a whole new level because I, you know, I, I grew up reading the New York Times. Uh, I just have a lot of respect for the journalism and the innovation that this company does. Cool. So innovation, Ruby. Yes. So the team that I joined uh, started out... Um, I guess in about 2007 in the newsroom, it's called the Interactive News Desk. I was, take, when, I guess when I joined, I was number eight. The, that team has now grown to maybe 30 people. 
And they were using Ruby, um, and they were the first people to use Ruby inside the Times, as far as I know. The work that the Interactive News Desk does now, it's a mix of one-off, a little like Ruby or JavaScript apps that take maybe a day or so to produce. And then there's like the middle ground, um, like Ruby on Rails apps are pretty common. And some of the projects last even up, up to a year from scoping and producing and going out. So it's a, it really runs the gamut. So some, some of the biggest projects that I worked on, and they were all Ruby-based, were covering the London Olympics. That was a mix of some Rack applications, Ruby-based um, queues, like using Rescue to parse all the data that the IOC sends out with Olympic results and, and world records, that kind of stuff. And then also scaling out the production of entire websites for 12 media organizations, including the New York Times in different languages. Wow. <laughs> so you said that you said you were covering the Olympics, and that's yes. the, that's the sort of thing that a re, that a reporter says, like I'm covering <laughs> the Olympics. So, so I mean, I mean, do, I mean, do you, do you have that same sort of reporter attitude? Like your job is providing news to people. Absolutely. And I think this, this has been a topic of discussion for the last several years, and it still is, um, the topic of what is a data journalist or what is the right term for someone who does what I do and, you know, what various other like, news application teams at, at other organizations do. Um, is it a hacker journalist? Is it mm -hmm. a news developer? And are they reporters or not? The way I think of it is whether you're producing words for a story or data to go along with the story or the data is the story you're reporting, you're covering. So uh, I guess a name that's familiar to people around that would be Nate Silver, with, you know, the, the 538 guy. Who, yes. who, who turned data into news in a huge way. Yeah. Yeah. And he used to work at the Times. He actually sat a few desks away from me. Um, oh, right. And yeah, yeah. Um, so now he's doing um, a new, he, he has a new project, of course, um, right. outside of the Times. But yeah, I mean, he, he became very well known for, well, for me, it was his baseball um, analytics, but of course, the political spectrum um, calling elections and polls. So let's dig a little deeper into this Olympics example, if you don't mind. You sent us a great uh, article kind of explaining it. Can you just talk a little bit about what the system took in and, and how that worked, kind of? Because it's really interesting. Sure. It's going to involve XML. <laughs> <That's all right>. <laughs> can, <laughs> there can, goes can, our family-friendly rating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can we insert Mike D'Alessio's quote? What's that? Was it was it Mike or Aaron? The it smells like violence. Yeah, if it's not working, you're not using enough of it. Didn't nice. didn't Dave Thomas say that it was a DSL for Java? <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Oh, that would explain a lot. <laughs> anyway, you were saying. Sure. Um, so when I when I first uh, came came onto the interactive news desk, it was towards the end of 2009, and a couple of the people on the team were talking about Vancouver, and they were talking about this, you know, XML stuff that they were going to have to wrangle. And I was brand new, and I didn't really know what they were talking about. And suddenly, I was full time on that project, and that was my introduction to the Olympics and the Olympic data and a whole world of jargon and acronyms that are, yeah, it's kind of amazing the, the whole spectrum of, of things that the Olympics entails. So the way the Olympics uh, coverage at the Times works is that we get, we get a, a feed from the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. And what that feed entails is, well, first, a, a ton of XML, but it's everything from who the athletes are participating in the in the games, what events are happening in the games, when they're happening, all of the results. And the results are not just, you know, so-and-so got first place. The results are incredibly detailed. And they send them out in, I guess at some point, the format of this XML makes sense for the systems that power the scoreboards, let's say, at the venues. But when you're sitting there as a, you know, as a developer trying to make sense of the stuff that you're seeing, it's very arcane. So a lot of the, I'd say we spent a, a good, maybe one third of the entire development cycle, which lasted over a year, just trying to understand the data and how it maps to 
you know, the events that we will watch on, on TV or if you're lucky to go to the Olympics that you see in person, right? So what in this very long XML message that is talking about, you know, extended results and extensions and logical dates. I, I think the logical date uh, concept in, in the, that data feed was my favorite. <laughs> um, like, how, how does that actually map to, say, Usain Bolt getting first place in the 100 meter dash? So that was a big chunk of our understanding. And then, of course, like we had to parse the XML. And to do that, we used Nokagiri, which was great. But the speed at which you get the messages um, and the order in which you get the messages is incredibly important because sometimes the messages will undo the previous ones. Sometimes they add on to it. So we had to, to build a lot of logic and set up a pretty extensive rescue set of cues to handle all of that. And messages, they were being pushed to you, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, they were, so you, they you, were being pushed so you, to us. So you had to keep up. We did. Yeah. Because if we, I mean, there are ways of, you know, falling back and getting them to send you the message again. But, you know, if it's, if you're trying to do any, anything close to a, a real time coverage, you don't want to have to fall into that. And the thing about missing a message is that you might not necessarily know that you missed it. So how would you even know to say, to send it back? Uh huh. So the whole description that you had of the ingest process for the XML and how mm-hmm. like crazy optimized very particular pieces of it had to be, that was fascinating. But And I love that it was this really interesting combination of very simple, straightforward tricks and some very sophisticated things. And I, I kind of thought of the image of a carpenter using some sort of like $300 you know, laser sonar stud finder and then a hammer. That's a great point. Maybe we can talk about that just a little. Like in the article, it mentioned how, you know, uh, and, and Jackie mentioned again that they're coming in at this big rate. An individual message could be like up to 20 megs of XML. There's not even really time to, you know, in the thick of it, run it through the XML parser because you need to be grabbing the next message. And so um, instead, there's a very simple rack app that hit the first line with a regular expression to figure out what kind of message it was and then just stuck it in a queue, basically, in a file and then queued it for, uh, you know, parsing. And and so it just, it flowed them in as quick as it could and then decisions were made later based on, you know, how important something was and, you know, how behind they were in the queue. So, like, should you skip messages right now because... This one's not vital, and we're under heavy load, and we're behind. So, yeah, it, Josh is right. It was a neat combination of let's use these simple tools, get this info in here, and then we'll try to go to more robust systems to make sense of it and do what we can do with it. It was cool. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And we ended up just adding a page in our in our internal admin for the Olympics that had two buttons or really uh, two buttons for every live event that was happening, just saying, like, please turn off the real-time data because our, you know, if our systems were falling too far behind, um, just having the ability to maybe, maybe just get, like, those full messages instead of, like, those incremental results. Yeah. Um, we were kind of talking about this before the show, but we haven't really brought it up on the show. I mean, there's a lot of pressure from, like, the readers and stuff, the, the people following these events to get the info, like the instant it happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. And not only to get it uh, the instant it happens, but to get get it accurately. So doing something fast and doing something well and accurate and well, you know, tested and everything like that, verified, are two different things. And to have to do both of those at once is very challenging. So we tried to be as careful as possible. And we went through many test events, both on our own and as orchestrated by the IOC. Um, So in the, I'd say in the year or so leading up to any Olympics, the IOC is, is conducting test events. And those test events, I thought this was really kind of weird and fascinating, but the test events can be real events that would have been happening anyway. So every sport has its own World Cup. You know, even the the modern, my favorite, the modern pentathlon has its own World Cup. And so what the IOC will do is they'll get uh, the people that handle the data, which is uh, Swiss timing, aka Swatch in Switzerland. Um, They'll get them to show up at, at these events with 
all of their equipment and produce the data feed for the Olympics as if it was the Olympics. And sometimes the test events are just completely made up and they're just running scripts on their, on their servers. That's interesting. So it gives you kind of a dry run before your system has to hold up for the real thing. Exactly. Yeah. The scariest part of building that project, though, for me was that we never got an end-to-end sort of happy path of the data until the Olympics actually happened. So we kind of crossed our fingers, to be honest, and and hope that that the documentation that we were provided would actually be accurate, you know, and like we, we would get, you know, a full suite of messages for a particular event, but everything from the opening ceremony to the closing and all of those events happening in different combinations at the same time, we were never provided with that. So we just had to, to make a lot of educated guesses. Wow. So you just had people stay up late? And- yeah, everybody on call pretty much. Uh, yeah, I mean, we divided into shifts. Um, my colleague Ben Kosky and I were actually sent to London for the games. And so it was a five-hour time difference between London and New York. Uh, so we had a team in New York that would take over like towards the afternoon uh, London time. But I was having to you know, meet, meet up with the Times team at King's Cross Station in London at 7 o'clock in the morning, which is not a time of day I'm usually, well, awake <laughs> for. <laughs> and then having to get on their special high-speed train, which was called the, the Javelin, because, you know, we have to torture metaphors. <laughs> um, and uh, go through security at the Olympic Park and then take a bus to the me- media office and then finally find myself in front of a computer, hopefully before the first events started, which were usually at 8.30 in the morning. So so I have a question about this coverage. We're talking primarily about the statistics of the Olympics, obviously, you know, who's who's running and what speed and and those kinds of things. How does that relate with the more traditional journalism side? And like, how do you marry those two? Like, you know, I'm assuming the New York Times also wrote pieces about the Olympics. And was that in any way related to the data? Or were those handled as two totally separate systems? Or what? I guess the the answer is a little bit of all of the things you just said. Um, There were, of course, lots of stories written by reporters without using data. Um, for the Olympics. But there were also many cases of collaboration, I I guess, between um, what we would more traditionally call reporters um, who are just writing stories and myself and and the team producing like the the results and and the website package for the for the site. One thing I I found fantastic personally, but also kind of funny is that I already mentioned my my favorite sport being the modern pentathlon. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this event. Or I'm not. Whole sport. The modern pentathlon is really not not that modern. Um, it's this event that was created at the end of the 1800s that was supposed to be the ultimate test of an athlete, but the ultimate test of an athlete or a soldier as, as of you know like 1880. So think Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders or, or <laughs> things like that. So the first thing you have to do is you have to fence everyone else. So what happens in the games is that all the athletes are, you know, paired up on different mats and they all fence at the same time and one touch, you're out. Then you have to go and swim. And after that, you pull yourself out of the water and you have to ride an unfamiliar horse, uh, which is the part that really caught my eye. Um, the uh, that is awesome. Yeah. And then after that, you run and shoot, though sadly not at the exact same time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, the modern pentathlon was the first test event that was actually happening at Greenwich Park um, that our systems were developed enough uh, before the games to take part in. And so I was sitting there worried that we were going to just find a lot of bugs, but also just really curious, like, how does this work? We had it on the TV. I did not really know what the modern pentathlon was at that point. And I'm looking at the data coming in and I start noticing some words that I'm not well, first, I, I start noticing words in English just like coming through the data, which was unusual. And it turned out that what they do is they send you these biographies of the horses, of the unfamiliar huh. horses. Wow. And um, they kind of sound like personal ads. They're a bit risque. <laughs> 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 
weird. And so I, I brought all of this up because you were asking about the marriage of um, of data and our reporting. So I'm pretty sure, um, maybe you can fact check me on this, but um, I looked and we didn't do much coverage or maybe no coverage of the modern pentathlon for the previous uh, summer games. But we found this data so fascinating and we the interactive team has a really good relationship with the sports desk at the times. And so I would talk to reporters about this stuff and I started showing them these horse biographies and they ended up writing, I think about five different stories on the modern pentathlon in, in 2012. And I got my first credits for contributing to reporting. And I eventually was even sent to cover the last event of the, of the games myself um, in Greenwich park, which was the women's modern pentathlon. So there are all different ways that we will collaborate from like the more tech side to the, the traditional reporting side. Sometimes that, that also involves just, you know, inserting some of our, you know, whether it's a, an interactive or a statistical sort of listing of, of results from, you know, not just from the Olympics, but also from you know, presidential elections and midterm elections into our stories just to enhance the coverage. You mentioned fact-checking right there. Is that some of the ways collaboration happens? Like, uh, you know, is is uh, there any merit to using, like, these data streams, uh, you know, to do some fact-checking of traditional reporting or things like that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So in the case of the Olympics, again, during the Games, while we're getting the data in, sometimes before the, whether it's the announcer at the venue or um, a the Olympic broadcast channel, which is this internal uh, uh, news network that they set up at, at the games, before they, they would report a world record, p- perhaps, I would see it in the data as it comes in. So that that's one way. Or just, you know, to reference times or the order of rankings and things like that in a story. Yeah, you could absolutely use, use the, the data for that. That's cool. So, do we have more to talk about the Olympics? I mean, is there... Uh, no, let's move on. Let's, let's talk about crazy R&D. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I, so, I, you've been working in Go, right? Is that, I have, yeah. I have been, I've been learning this and calls over. Go. <laughs> the Go Gobes. <laughs> yeah, how's that going? The, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a funny name for a language. Um, it's kind of hard to Google anything about yeah. Go. There's <laughs> You would think uh, ironically, ironically, yeah, (laughs) right, right, right. (laughs) So you built a whole like stream processing thing for data, and I found the whole write up of that really interesting. And then I found the whole like the whole thing of this. Hey, there's this open news website. What what am I looking at here? Can you just tell us about this open news website? I was wondering about that too. Yeah, what is that? Sure. Yeah. And I, I thought that would be a cool thing for listeners of this podcast to know about that. Not only are there developers going into the whole journalism world, there are also, um, there are also now these sources of information online that you can even read about some of the more interesting projects that those developers are doing. Uh, so the open news project is out, is a joint collaboration between the Knight Foundation and Mozilla. And they have a few different things online that kind of shed some light on on the industry, including uh, Source, which is where a bunch of my links were hosted. Uh, so Source is really uh, just aims to provide like like a, a list of like what are the current events related to uh, news and technology, what are people doing. They get people from the industry to write up projects like um, I've written up a few of the projects that I've worked on at the Times on there. And then they also have learning, like a whole learning section it's meant to help people who are, you know, whether they're coming from the like the technology angle and wanting to get into journalism or vice versa, how exactly do you do that? Because it's a pretty new field and schools are only now starting to try to address it. So that's open, open news. And they also sponsor fellows every year. So they'll take in applications and then the people that they pick get put in different newsrooms um, around the world in South America and Europe and the U S that's interesting. But that, I mean, that that's cool that there's that whole community and industry segment that, I mean, that sounds pretty worth checking out. Okay. So, so you, so yes, yeah, so, so you gave us a couple links to things that you put up on the source on open news. And one of them was this uh, stream processing stuff that you did. Right. So that project stream tools, it's an open source project and it's, 
it's actually how I got into R&D in the, in the first place. Towards the end of last year, I had switched my focus from producing, you know, interactive content or doing things like election coverage or um, Olympics to a more in, internal facing one, which is newsroom analytics. And that's a whole other can of worms. And we could talk about that for a long time too. So I'll just say that it's a way for the newsroom to try to get to understand its audience more because, you know, we don't produce just a single paper that gets sent out to everyone. We can produce different experiences for different people. So how do we do that? Well, one initial step you can take is trying to understand who's coming to the New York Times, how they're coming to, a, to the New York Times, whether it's on the website or a phone or a tablet. And so when I started to do that, um, I, of course, needed to you know, start seeing like what data we had available on activity on the site and, and the apps. And what I found was another group inside the Times had written their own, th- their own like, suite of tools to consume that sort of activity. But then, unfortunately, when it came to, you know, trying to query it, there was nothing. I mean, the data was on S3, gzipped on S3, and the files were, uh, I eventually figured out that the files were named by timestamp and some kind of instance ID from EC2. So, like, there was no way to understand what those files contain. So I started, you know, going down the road of just writing scripts to, you know, automate downloading and unzipping and all, all of that stuff. But that all took a long time. And uh, someone told me that, that R&D had been working on this tool that was all about consuming data. So I started hanging out in R&D. And when I saw stream tools, you know, I, I tried it out on this particular uh, stream of data, and it was great. And I just found the whole thing fascinating. Um, and I like, I, you know, I've, I've been doing Ruby for oh my gosh, I think I started doing Ruby at the end of two thousand six, and you know, I, I really had been wanting to learn another language just to get some variety. And uh, I've been poking around with Closure, but I didn't really have a use case for Closure. And then along came this data problem and stream tools, which is all written in Go. So um, the idea of stream tools was really my colleagues, uh, Mike Dewar, um, and I, him and uh, Nick Hanselman uh, in R&D had been working on it for, I guess, a couple of months when I joined. So that's, that's how I ended up working in R&D in the first place. But it's something that you can interact with just on the command line with curl. It's all over HTTP, but it's also a visual programming language in your browser. So uh, how it works is basically you, it's based around the concept of blocks and connecting those blocks. So a block can be an input block, like a, a block that will read data off of um, a queue like SQS, or it will accept HTTP posts containing data. And then there are other blocks that can be used to manipulate the data, whether to filter it or to rename some of the fields in there. And then there are the output blocks. And so we have a fairly fairly good coverage, I think, of, of the different kinds of input and outputs that you might want, but there's still like plenty more that could be written. You know, like we have some blocks that will output into Elasticsearch RabbitMQ uh, readers and writers, but you know the hope is that it's an open source project, and the hope is that it will it will allow people to work with real time streams of data um, in an easier way, and that you know if you don't if there isn't a block for the particular uh, scenario that you're dealing with, you can write one fairly easily. So for me, that's involved learning a new programming language and then writing it in a way that um, might make sense to other people who don't even know me and building a framework that would make it easy for people to, to contribute to it. When I was looking at the blog post on that framework, and particularly how you program, you hook the blocks together visually, it reminded me a lot of, of some work I did in LabVIEW. Really interesting model where you, you, just, you define inputs, and then the, that sort of drives the rest of the system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's... Oh, you know, I, I should I should send you guys a link to this great blog that we found. That's a, a roundup of all the visual programming languages going back to 1963, I think the hmm. first one was. They actually just added stream tools to it, but that, you know, all of those previous projects were a big source of inspiration and you know, we would talk a lot about what what worked and what didn't work in in the tools that we had used before. Mhm. So this is basically a data flow system, which I think is awesome. And those things are pretty cool because you it 
you know, okay, I'm going to, it's a nice way for describing essentially a big data problem. Is this stuff targetable to something like, you know, Hadoop? Can you, you know, take the stream tool stuff and map that onto a distributed network? Or- yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose you could. Um, right now, what, our, what we're focusing on are first um, having it be useful for the newsroom. Um, the newsroom is already uh, starting to work with it, actually. So this is a case where R&D is looking forward, but also working in the present, too. So, um, so okay. that's kind of cool. So we've gotten a few contributions from the from people on the interactive news desk in the form of you know, pull requests on GitHub, but they're also just now starting to use it to replace some of the, the more um, like programming-intensive like parts of projects that could just be done with stream tools. You know, I, I've, mm-hmm. I've actually run the Olympics data through it. <laughs> so, I mean, there are ways that it can simplify that process, too. That's cool. So does does the Olympics data actually qualify as big data, in your opinion? Or is it still just medium data? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what the <laughs> what the limits the are or whatever for, for, yeah, the magic cutoff. Um, I wouldn't have said it's big data, whatever big data is, <laughs> you know, because it, it's a lot of data in kind of esoteric format. And by esoteric, I don't, I don't mean that XML by itself is that esoteric. It's more that, that it's just like hard, hard to decipher, you know, but, right. you know, big, big data is like, more than several terabytes even, right? I think that's mm-hmm. what most people mean. Right. It seems like something like stream tools, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you're doing is lowering the barrier to entry for playing with different kinds of data, right? You have these pre-pluggable pieces that handle a lot of common inputs and stuff, and then, you know, all these ways you can mix and match them. Maybe you have to define one, you know, block, as you said, that's a particular bit for whatever you're playing with now, but it seems to lower the barrier of entry to hooking up different data streams and seeing, like, is this something we can use and and do productive things with? Is that kind of one of the goals? Yeah, absolutely. Lowering the barrier, both in terms of who can actually work with those sorts of data streams. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be a programmer to use stream tools. You can use it, you know, in your browser and connecting blocks as they currently exist. You know, because there's some little configurations that you can do in the browser, like point it at the URL of your of your queue on Amazon, or for instance. But the other barrier that we were hoping to lower is on the developer. Um, when you're working with, whether it's a new stream of data or an existing stream of data that you want to explore differently, just being able to make changes to how you're processing it live without having to even restart anything can just make the whole development process so much faster and easier. That's a good point. I saw in the in the write-up they had a neat example where, I mean, it's kind of obvious that a, a tool like Stream Tools is, is kind of, you know, ideal for things that are pushing information to you. So like Twitter streaming API or, or you know, uh, something that delivers posts like the Olympics did or, or whatever. But um, in the example, that it was something that you just had to pull, at, you know, every so many seconds. And Stream Tools handled that just fine by having like this ticker that emitted a time every so often. And then you hook that up to the thing you want to do, you know, so that every time uh, the time comes in, you could reach out to a website and grab the new data or whatever. So it was interesting how it even let you do things like that, I thought. Yeah, I mean, so there are ways that we've come up with to make non-streaming data kind of act like a stream. Um, but with the, the forward-looking part of this this project is that we think that there will be more streams of data uh, coming like over the next you know couple of years. But for now, like for dealing with data that isn't necessarily coming to you in, in like the Twitter firehose, as your example, yeah, there are ways you, you can make it behave kind of like a stream. That's cool. So one of the things you said in the write-up about stream tools was you, you talked about how it gives you conceptually different outlook on how you analyze data. And that it's much more about sort of the instantaneous velocity, like what's happening right now, as opposed to piling up all the data for the last year and extracting something from that a massive data. So it, absolutely, I think you're referring to the the write up that my colleague did on on yes, I think right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, no, ab- 
Absolutely. I mean, like, it's kind of um, a shift in, in the way that I've thought about dealing with, you know, any sort of uh, stream, stream or um, uh, feed of data um, in that, like, I would usually have to download a data dump or wait for enough data to accumulate before I could start, you know, doing things like checking for patterns or, you know, processing it or, or whatever. Um, but this way, uh, you can you can actually just start inspecting it. Um, in real time. And does that give you a, like, do you find yourself approaching the software side of that differently when you're building things for that sort of outcome? I mean, I mean, what, I mean, that's, that's mean maybe, that, I mean, that's, that's maybe a pretty vague, vague way of putting it. It's just, I'm thinking that when we work with data and we're do, like, we're doing our active record queries to look in the database, to go to a big fetch and, you know, find all this stuff out that the streaming stuff, it's like, well, you know, there's stuff that we need to know right away. And it was, it was just, I'm not doing a good, a good job of articulating this. It just seems like there's, when you're approaching an analytics problem, you know, at, at some level, that's what we're talking about. You're, you're analyzing a lot of data that it's what's happening right now versus what happened like last month. And I don't know. I'm not able to complete this thought. So, so maybe this is just not a No, I mean, there, I, I think you're right. There is something there, um, in that, you, know, you don't have to wait for whatever piece of software to process this real, like you, you're getting data in real time, let's say, and typically you'd have to, you know, receive it, parse it, manipulate it in some way to put it into some kind of data store, whether it's a MySQL database or whatever, and then you could start analyzing it. This changes that whole pattern and it, yeah, I mean, does that sound about like what you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's basically what I was asking. And and yeah, you know, are there are there just like certain libraries that make that easier or or different? I mean, you know, I see that you wrote wrote this stuff in Go. So I mean, obviously, Go is built for sort of you know a certain kind of of uh, software. So I mean, that seems like maybe a good fit. Is you know, yeah, other I mean, Go, Go makes it easier to have um, concur- network concurrency and to, to do things like make different channels and broadcast data across different channels and receive data on other channels at the same time. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think in the end, you know, Go, well, while moving from working with Ruby to a compiled language like Go is, I don't know, I, I've had to uh, really step back and like rethink the way I approach programming a lot. Um, you know, the, in Ruby, like, I think we get a little, a little spoiled, like with the, with just how dynamic it is and how, you know, you can just uh, extend or mock out things so much easier. But Go, on the other hand, is very fast and it, it, it's very good at, at things like concurrency and dealing with data and streams and things. Mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of a little curious about the architecture there, if you don't mind talking about that. Like with the blocks and stream tools, is that does do they map to like a single Go routine or a family of Go routines, or does it not break down that simply? No, it, it does kind of break down like that. Um, so each block is, we refer to it as a, our library of blocks. And so we have over all of them, there's um, there's a block manager that will manage the requests coming in and going out of the blocks and you know going from one block to another or going from you know one block in, at the end to the final output wherever that is but each block is a different file it's most basic level in the library of stream tools and sometimes the blocks actually will spawn their own their own go routines and sometimes they they just follow a very simple pattern mm, okay that's interesting. Yeah, and then, then there's the whole front end, too, that is written in JavaScript and makes extensive use of WebSockets to do things like uh, maintain state and, and handle communications between the blocks and between the blocks in your browser as well. Okay, so the, the UI is in the browser. The UI is all in the browser, yeah. I hadn't and paid enough attention I've, to that part. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I haven't... I haven't worked very much on on the front end jo- like code, which is all written in in JavaScript. But yeah, it all, it, it, all, it all works in your browser. I've noticed just in my current job where we have a lot of data flowing through the system, just getting some kind of visibility on that data flowing through can change the way I think about it. You know, once I can see the shape of it and what's happening in real time, then that, oh, I can see this is the pattern or whatever. And I imagine tools like string tools make that easier to do. 
Yeah, um, part of the idea of it is that you could use it as, I guess, like a prototyping tool or that will help inform your decisions on how, how you're going to store the data or how you're going to interact with it in the end. Or uh, And then on the other hand, like maybe you pipe data through something like Stream Tools and you, you realize, oh, I don't actually have to store this at all um, because you get to have that, that sort of overview and understanding of it in real time. Right. That's cool. So kind of taking the conversation in a different way, uh, direction, how does the New York Times, as they get, you know, more into this development stuff, how do they get, you kind of mentioned like data reporters or whatever, this kind of concept of a programmer slash statistician slash reporter kind of thing. How does the New York Times get rolling with something like that? Do they just hire a few developers? Uh, you know, what? what's the process there? How did we get started with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Aaron Pilhofer, who before I joined R&D was my boss on the interactive news desk. He started out um, working on the on a desk that has possibly my favorite acronym in all of the world, uh, CAR, which is uh, computer assisted reporting, uh, a term that <laughs> a term that dates back to hmm, uh, at least the early 80s. I'm not sure how how far back it goes, but the computer the CAR desk, as it's typically called, or computer assisted reporting, it was one of like the first steps towards um, merging uh, journalism and technology. So that those people are traditionally the ones who will do um, analysis of very large data dumps, like um, maybe from the census, or anytime there's a Freedom of Information uh, Act request uh, for, uh, I don't know, um, like the, a certain state's uh, healthcare uh, records for their uh, hospitals for the developmentally disabled. That's, that's another example. Um, when those sorts of data sets get delivered, um, it's usually like the car desk that, that will handle them. So anyway, uh, my former boss, Aaron, was working there and he saw that with the way the tech scene and the internet and everything like that was, you know, just changing um, and how, how businesses were like all online. And of course, Times had a website, but our reporting was like pretty separate from doing anything on on the web and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so he started the, the Interactive News Desk back then in, I guess, 2006, 2007. And, you know, how, how you start hiring people, you know, for a job that hadn't really existed before is, you know, you get journalists who are either a little adept with technology or interested in learning technology and bring them on and help them get up to speed on something like, you know, web development with Ruby or you, you get uh, people who are already experienced programmers and developers and get them up to speed on what it means to be a reporter and what different what the different concerns are and priorities for uh, doing that kind of software development in a newsroom compared to at a startup, let's say. You know, it's not always possible or even a priority to have a very high amount of like, test coverage and automated test suite for something that has to go out in an hour, right? So um, it's a different sense. I guess it's a different sensibility. But, you know, so, so we tend to hire people who are kind of in one world a little more than the other, and they learn on the job. It's really fascinating. So you're saying that a lot of the development you do is chalked up more to simple scripts to massage a certain data set or something and, and not so much the long-term process that you would want to have a robust test coverage on and stuff like that. Yeah, and very often, though, like the thing that you hacked, hacked together to meet a deadline is successful and people want more of it and you're having to repeat or, or make, make some code uh, generic and repeatable. And then you want to start, you, you know, it's probably a good idea to start putting in some test coverage and things like that. But figuring out which of those uh, things you kind of hack together in an hour is going to take off and get a lot of attention within the company, is, you know, that's pretty hard to do. So, it, it, you know, you try to write you know, good code. Um, because again, like, you don't want to get something on like the, the front page of, of the New York Times and have it just be wrong or error out, right? So it's trying to find that balance between um, good software development practices and journalistic sensibilities too. I guess what I would say is that one of the main differences that I, I found is that the focus isn't on the technology itself working here. The focus is on the results. 
So while you can talk about how cool, like, you know, this queue system that you, you found is like, or, you know, comparing the merits of something, you know, like psychic to rescue or whatever, in the end, no one cares, you know, which one of those things that you use or, or even that you use Ruby or whatever to produce this thing when they're coming to read the news. No one's going to care if, if your test suite runs like 30 seconds faster than um, yesterday, right? As long as it's really just more about the results and less about how you got there. I'd like to ex expand on that a little if we could. I'm kind of fascinated by the picture I'm getting of the environment that you, that you work in uh, because it really sounds like both the interna interactive news department where you have all these very quick turnaround one-off jobs to do uh, that might just be a day of work or with the R&D stuff where you can kind of play around with ideas. And I, I know, I don't think we talked about it, but some of the other background reading I did, there were some interesting articles about uh, constructing just little bots that do interesting things with data or with Twitter and stuff like that. It really sounds to me like uh, you work in a very idea-rich environment. Uh, it seems like there are a lot of opportunities for coming up with an idea of something that you can quickly do with data and then doing something useful with it, doing something that, that enlightens people or amuses them, if nothing else. And I, I, I honestly, I kind of envy that, you know, and that's not something that everybody gets. Even people, a lot of people with regular programming jobs, you know, a lot of times every day it's the same idea. Do I have to go to work for the, the New York Times to work in an environment like that? Or are there ways that I could expand my horizon and, I don't know, have that kind of interesting data around me where I could think, hey, I could put two and two together and make something cool in in, in four hours. Well, I'm, if you're interested in working for the New York Times, I do believe we are hiring. But, so, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, of course, I um, ask on, on behalf of the listeners. Journalism. <laughs> sure, sure. Abdi, to, Abdi yeah. may not even be a rogue by the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think you're right there. That it, it is an idea-rich environment here. Um, and part of that you know, comes from the group of people that the Times has gotten together, um, the very talented group of people. But, you know, it's not just New York Times that has, you know, talented people, of course. Uh, the, other, the other end of it, I'd say, is out of necessity, right? The newspaper industry, how many of you have actually bought, like, a print copy of the paper, you know, recently, of any paper? Right? I have not. So, <laughs> yeah, so we, we have like to innovate money? <laughs> have, we they, have they still those I, make those we have yeah, but i hesitate exactly. to uh to say what for what purpose <laughs> <laughs> right for things other than you know packing your moving boxes and stuff right so i mean the industry has has to change and has to innovate and, ha and has to like come up with new ideas so it's kind of necessity too but to your question about like, do i have to work at the new york times to do that of you know, no of course not and you know not everyone can even work or even wants to work at, you know, a, at a media organization, right? So there are so many, there are just so many um, available data sets out there, you know, that as far as I know, and like no one's really exploring or, or doing anything with, uh, or someone could be and not, you know, I just haven't heard about it, right? And that's entirely possible too. But like, if you just like, um, I've been going on this website, uh, Programmable Web, which has like a, a pretty good listing of, available APIs and, and they update, they're updating it all the time just to see like, like what would happen if I take, you know, uh, data from the USGS, the geological services, right. On earthquakes. If I, if I can consume that and maybe, you know, here's an idea, like, you know, mash up that with, um, analyzing what news stories are getting produced or, you know, like in relation to uh, events that are happening that I guess you could turn, you, you could term them as disaster events or whatever and see how that impacts what people or see how that impacts what people are even talking about on Twitter. Twitter has an API, right? So I, I think there's just a lot of possibility out there for either doing analysis of, you know, single sets of data or mashing up different sets of data as well. So I have to like bring this up because you sent us this awesome article. It was one of the ones I read before this episode, and I didn't really appreciate it until you just, you know, talked about that. But uh, somebody had made a bot at one point that was the New York Times minus context. And it was a Twitter <laughs> bot, and NYT minus context. And they had taken these funny sentences from inside New York Times articles, but had removed all the context. 
So you had no idea where these were coming from. And so there were expressions like a scrum of Euro kissing and plastic surgery expressionism is one of the ones that's mentioned in the article. And then people in the New York Times began to find this feed and they were like, wow, what article was this? And so they would hunt through trying to find them. And so then you ended up making a bot New York Times plus context, which would <laughs> right. take these quotes, go figure out which article they came from, and then tweet the link to the article to put the context back. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Originally, it was just the idea for that was from a place that I think a lot of good ideas from programmers come from, which is uh, laziness. Um, I... Um, I wanted some way of just like finding the sources of all of those quotes because they're really, you know, intentionally like off the wall sort of, sort of quotes that you wouldn't really necessarily think would show up in a, you know, in like the New York Times, right? But then, uh, it, it's become this, this kind of serendipitous way of reading the content that the Times produces. And, um, I've gotten a, a quite a lot of feedback from people, um, on Twitter, mostly that, say that this is actually just how they read the New York Times. They just go between awesome. you know, minus context and plus context. And that, that is how they read the paper now. So yeah, that, that was a lot of fun building that. Some people, I, I, I actually got some negative feedback too, that, that I was ruining the serendipity or whatever by adding the context back, which is why it doesn't just like publicly tweet it, it actually just replies to NYT minus context. So, you know, my hope was that, you know, if you didn't want things spoiled, if you can call that spoiling it, um, just don't, don't follow, don't follow the bot, right? So back well, and, up, I, and I note that the, that the uh, NYT minus context account actually references plus context too in their, <laughs> in their bio. Nice. Yeah. Um, we've exchanged a couple of emails too. Yeah. It's been very gracious about that. Nice. So, so Jackie, just backing up a, a few moments, the, it, it sounds like that the tools or the software tools are coming together or at least becoming available for uh, citizen journalists to become data journalists. It, it, that's, it seems like that's a lot of what you're talking about here and that uh, there, there's a big opportunity for people to, you know, step up and get get their hands on one of these data sets or some of these data sets and start, you know, doing reporting on the information that is available there. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the government as well at the at both, you know, the national level and at you know the state and even city levels, like in in New York, um, we have our own. Um, dedicated site to data sets that are available for the city. Um, and of course there's data.gov. There's more and more opportunity, I'd say, for, for people to find out like things that the government is tallying, you know, in various ways. Um, Congress long had different kinds of, of access to data sometimes by, I, I think the congressional data is getting better. Um, and there are different APIs that you can use to, you know, keep tabs on, on what bills are coming through in, in the house and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is opportunity for, you know, non, non-official, I guess, reporters to inspect uh, the data that's available. Absolutely. What I find most interesting is kind of along the lines of what Avdi said, I'm envious of your process. And I think it's that by being at this interesting junction of all of this data, you have these opportunities. And so because of that, it's almost forced you to a near ideal programming cycle in some ways, in that you have to do this spike, you know, something on a deadline that you throw out real quick and see how that goes. And then, like you said, you have no idea which ones are going to catch on or whatever. But then once you already have that data, then you can go back and be like, all right, let's turn this into a real system and, and build it the way we would have to do it to make it robust and maintainable or whatever. Uh, and who cares if you have to totally redo the spike work? You know, it's an hour or two of work or whatever that you do to get it right and, and knowing what you know now. It, it's kind of nice in that, whereas in the other world, we sometimes make the mistake of pouring large amounts of development effort into something we don't know is going to be useful, you know, and and building it robust from the get-go. And, and you have the luxury of being able to uh, test it first, you know, and with a minimal amount of output. I think that's great. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but keep in mind that once you're having to build it into a more robust system, there are, you know, the news 
as as the the saying goes, the news doesn't stop, um, and there are, there are new projects coming in as well um, that you're going to have to that will take away take away from your ability to build out that robust platform. But generally right. speaking, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. That's a very positive positive way I think to to look at that that process because you know it it is a lot of as, as I think. You, you guys all know, and certainly I would imagine most of the listeners of this podcast know, like building, you know, quality software is difficult, right? And it's something that you have to give consideration and time to. So, yeah. So, like, just being able to test something and get a lot of, you know, whether it's users or, um, you know, interacting with it in a short amount of time and seeing what works and what doesn't work can definitely help inform, help inform your, the decisions you would make in building out a platform. Absolutely. It's been super cool to hear about the process at the New York Times and stuff. It's very, very interesting. What cool times we live in. Mm-hmm. It's very awesome. We're going to start making Times jokes now. We're up with the oh, Times oh, again. Oh, nice. <laughs> it sounds like it's Times for picks. <laughs> All right, Josh, what are your picks? <laughs> okay. Thank you for uh, throwing that right back in my face. Okay. so I. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I practice every day. Okay, so uh, let's see. Conferences. I last night uh, discovered that there is this amazing conference going on next month that I really want to go to, and it has nothing to do with programming. It's called Buffy to Batgirl. And it's. What? <laughs> yes. And I really <laughs> want to go to it. It's at Rutgers University next month. And the program for this conference is just amazing. It's like, what's in that basket, little girl? Reading Buffy as Little Red Riding Hood. You know, things like Warrior Women of the 1980s, uh, Heroine as Huntress, images of female archers in comics, fantasy, and science fiction. And it's just like all like feminism applied to the kind of pop culture that I love. So anyway, I doubt I'll be able to go, but I really want it. So I hope somebody else goes and tells me all about it. <laughs> That's my dream pick this week. And then I have a, I have a, I have a very uh, cute little pick, the Unix command line tool, Expand. So I wrote a little script. Somebody gave me a project recently that had tabs in the source code. Like, who puts tab Ooh, characters in source code? Ouch. You know, what is this, like 1970s? So <laughs> I discovered there's a Unix utility called Expand. And you, you can realize just... there's a Go programmer in the room, right? <laughs> hey, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'm a small talk programmer. We use, tab we use tabs in small talk all the time, too. So. But anyway, so Expand will convert tabs to soft tabs, basically runs of spaces, and it's a lot smarter than a regular expression that just turns tabs into spaces because if you have partial tabs, you know, if you start your tab in the middle of a run of spaces, it makes everything line up good. So, yeah. the expand utility in Unix. So, that's my picks. That sounds really useful. I mean, I I would hope that everyone is ha has their text editor set up to not use tabs and use spaces <laughs> instead. I mean, I have, I don't know, I'm a Vim I, I do all my my code editing in Vim and you know expand tab and stuff. So, but it's yeah. cool. So that's on the command line. You can just run that. Yeah, expand expand dash t two that will convert your tabs into soft two tabs. spaces. Yeah, so I, I just wrote a little Ruby script that found all of my files and ran expand on them, and I just checked all that into Git. So, oh, okay, I'm done. All right, James, what are your picks? I'm still busy reading the man page from Josh's command. And, uh, <laughs> how, how did I not know this exists? It's very cool. Okay, two picks. First of all, it's time for Rails Girls Summer of Code 2014. They are doing a campaign right now to get funding to help uh, as many students as they can uh, to uh, go through this process and improve open source. I'm pretty sure we talked about this in the past. We've definitely talked about the various kinds of summers of code, but I think this is important. Uh, it's super cool. So we should all help out. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that. Please go and, and help out. Even if you're just like volunteering to be a coach or something, that's helpful. If you can afford to give money, that would be even better. Uh, you know, just in whatever way you can help out. That would be great. The other thing that I want to mention, uh, we had this funny exchange before the show over what R&D is, and I have this broken version of R&D in my head due to the show Better Off Ted. And if you've never watched Better Off Ted, it's on Netflix streaming, uh, so it's easy to pick up there. And it's about uh, this company, Viridian Dynamics, that does 
all kinds of horrible things to their employees uh, and and these two scientists uh, that work for them and, and pull off all these fun projects uh, inventing, yeah, scented light bulbs and edible moss for NASA and just all kinds of zany things. It's kind of Arrested Development-esque, I would say, in its humor. So if that appeals to you at all, you would probably enjoy it. So yeah, better off Ted. That's my other pick. Awesome. Avdi, what are your picks? Uh, let's see. I'll start with a tool that I found really useful recently. I was working on my publishing tool chain, and I realized I wanted to be able to take a finished PDF and extract a few pages from it um, and assemble those into a different PDF. And some folks recommended a tool called PDFTK, which whose name first threw me because I was thinking of the TK uh, widget tool, tool set. But uh, no, it turns out it's, just a, it's a command line program that uh, is great for manipulating PDF files. You can do a whole whole lot of stuff with it, but one of the things you can do is you can basically just tell it, okay, take pages 5, 17 through 23, and 50 through 59, and extract those out and put them together into a new file. And that's just one command. And uh, so, yeah, PDFTK, very useful uh, if you have need for that sort of thing. There's a blog post that I really, really enjoyed recently. It's called uh, Letter to an Aspiring Developer by Brandon Hayes. And I've read a number of this style of blog posts over the years. I've even written one or two myself. But this is really one of the best ones in this vein that I've ever read. Uh, He's got some really fantastic advice in here. And finally, I bought a new backpack recently. And longtime listeners who are familiar with my picks will probably not be surprised that I bought it from Tom Bin. And I am so pleased with it. It is the Synopse 19. They also have a Synopse 25, which is a, a bigger version of it. But it's basically a day pack sized backpack. And I'm not going to go on and on and on about what all makes a backpack well-engineered. But this one really is. Um, uh, just one example. Uh, lots of backpacks have a place to put a water bottle. This one has a place that fully fits my 750 mil water bottle. But most backpacks will do things like stick them on the side somewhere. This one puts it dead center at the very back, so it neither throws the the full water bottle, neither throws the balance of the backpack off to one side, nor does it dig into your back. So uh, lots of little design decisions like that that make it really nice. And that's it for me. Very nice. I have to plus one the Brandon Hayes thing for two reasons. One is is that I remember talking to him on a semi-weekly basis when he was his whole goal was to get paid to write code. So this was back when he was a marketing guy at a company and wanted to get into coding. And he is one, the other reason is he's one of the most genuine people I know. And so uh, everything he writes is awesome. So anyway, I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is Vagrant. I know we've talked about it on the show before, but um, I kind of got in and was uh, doing some stuff with Vagrant to uh, figure some stuff out for one of my clients. And it has been really, really, really nice. I've also been playing with Graylog 2 and Kibana, and I really like those for visualization on log stuff. Still trying to figure out which one I want to use, but I'm liking both of those. So I'm going to pick both of those, and I'll throw it over to Jackie. I just want to plus one uh, on Kibana. I've been really impressed with the Kibana dashboard, and yeah, I haven't I haven't worked with Graylog 2, though. But okay, my picks... Um, I thought if if listeners were more interested in hearing what uh, we're doing in, in R&D labs uh, at the Times, uh, I just wanted to quick plug our, our website. Um, we have a blog that we write up um, our current you know experiments and more finished products, in, and that's at mytlabs.com. And if, if you're interested in hearing from another organization, um, to explore like how they're thinking of news coverage um, the, in terms of like the production of news coverage um, and breaking down stories into either their entities or their themes. You may have heard of uh, the BBC. Uh, the BBC has a pretty fantastic series of R&D labs, including the BBC News Labs. And one of their members wrote, wrote up this piece that I just found on Medium, and it's, it's called Storylines as Data at the BBC. And it's a pretty fascinating um, approach to, to breaking down um, all of the BBC's um, news coverage. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, you should check it out. But my favorite 
my favorite thing that has happened on, on or related to the internet this year was a lightning talk at a conference that I was at last month. It's a, the annual conference for programmer journalists. It's called NICAR. It, again, it incorporates my favorite acronym, CAR. But basically, a friend of mine, Jeremy Bowers, who's a, a programmer journalist at NPR, and a former uh, debate team member and coach, I guess, uh, going back from high school and through college, decided to try to explain the entire internet in five minutes. Um, I think he ended up speaking about 350 words per minute or something, or something like that. But he goes into everything from the backbones of the internet to you know, what, what is TCP IP and how does that work and how does that relate to the website. So there's a, a video of him giving this lightning talk, and then there is also um, his, his entire presentation, all slides, which, it, which involve plenty of kittens and things like that. And the conference was uh, NICAR, N-I-C-A-R. Uh, I think that's the National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting. It's pretty entertaining, though, to watch. That sounds awesome. That does sound awesome. Yeah, and, and if I have time for one more pick? Go for yeah, it. Yeah, go for uh, it. Okay. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this project to make a film version of Dune, uh, you know, the Frank Herbert book, um, that never actually ended up getting made, but it was the, one of the most amazing premises for a movie I've ever heard. Um, the director is Alejandro Jodorowsky, and he's done a bunch of really weird movies. Um, but back in, I guess, hmm, it must have been the 70s, uh, the mid-70s, he decided he wanted to make a film version of Dune. This is before David Lynch ended up doing it. And um, there's a documentary out now uh, just all about this project. I mean, he had cast Salvador Dali in it, and Pink Floyd was doing the music, and Geiger and uh, Mobius were doing all of the graphics. And they ended up coming up with this, uh, this you know, 200-page um, storyboard book that got sent out to all the studios and... Uh, you can see how it's informed plenty of other movies uh, that have since been made, even though that movie itself was never made. It's pretty fascinating and weird. And I like weird. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and that, those are my picks. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. It's been a terrific discussion. No, yeah. thank, thank you for having me. Fascinating stuff fun. going on over there. Yeah, thank cool. You. Quick reminder, our book club book is uh, Object Design. We'll be talking to Rebecca Wirfsbrock toward the end of May. So keep an ear out for that. Pick up the book. Go read it. We did look around, and it looks like the best way to get it is on Safari Books Online. So just be aware of that uh, because it is out of print. So anyway, I think that's it. So we'll wrap up, and we'll catch you all next week. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics, and are an active part of the Ruby community. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. Set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for a lot of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. Start with their free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. CodeShip, continuous deployment made simple. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.